Bonnie. Thank you for coming back to our podcast, Five One Eight Ambassador. Today we have a very special guest with us, Mr. Kevin Cassidy, Director of the International Labor Organization of the United States and Canada. So welcome. Thank you, Jennifer. Glad to be here. Thank you so much. And we've been having a lot of fun touring the capital region this morning.、Um, so, what do you think so far of your visit? You know, the economic opportunity center that we had visited、um, was exhibiting a lot of the、uh, activities that we would recommend internationally. So, the idea about、uh, getting people. Uh, skills so that they can own,、uh, earn a living for themselves、um, in cosmetology and welding and in electrical engineering.、Um, you know these are fascinating opportunities and times now because you don't always need the four-year college degree in order to go on and have a good job. The trades have traditionally been a very solid place for people to earn a good living for themselves, to、uh, to have a better life for themselves and their families. And increasingly now, as we're looking at building. A more、um, resilient environment regarding climate change, you know, those skills are going to be very important. So we were having the discussion in the roundtable luncheon, and they were talking about the wind farm possibilities that will be taking place very soon and creating those jobs here. I mean, all of this is really, you know, on point. People need to know that they can find jobs for themselves, that they will have skills and talents that they can trade for a fair remuneration and a good、uh, a good life for themselves. Absolutely, yeah, we we're very lucky to have some great resources and great people who are dedicated to developing the workforce and connecting our communities. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and the ILO? What is your role and what is the mission of the International Labour Organization? Yeah, I myself、um, started working at the UN、uh, right out of、uh, undergraduate. So, at 21, I walked into the UN. I talked myself into a job, and now 40 years later, I'm still there. Um, the International Labour Organization. I've been with them now for about 22 years. You know, it's one of these really unique institutions.、Um, the International Labour Organization is a technical agency of the UN, but it predates the UN. We come out of the Treaty of Versailles at the end of World War One, alongside the League of Nations, and our job was really to help set the rules of the game. Basically, how does the capitalist economy operate? Because back in 1919, you know, the capitalist model was one of many competing models at that time, but there were no uh, uh, regulations. They didn't know how it should be operating. And the one thing that、uh, the World War One had taught the world was that you had to treat people with dignity and with fairness, and that people have inherent rights. So when we started,、um, you know, working. You know, in this collaborative model, and that collaborative model,、uh, you know, consists of what we call the tripartite approach. This is very different from the UN, which has a intergovernmental approach. So the ILO, with the tripartite, takes the governments, the workers and employers organizations, and they sit down at the table as equals and discuss what the world of work will look like. In addition to that tripartite approach, the ILO is also a normative agency, and what that means is that the ILO helps set. The governance, the rules of the road for the global economy.、Um, our conventions are on hours of work. They are on occupational safety and health. It is about、uh, eliminating child labor, forced labor, human trafficking, eliminating violence and harassment in the workplace. It's about encouraging、uh, better models of operation. So the ILO has a very unique role because it sits at the nexus of the economic, the social, and the political. We see throughout the years that when people feel that they have no opportunity for a better life for themselves, you know that can really create anger within a society, and eventually that anger, if widespread enough, spills out into the political sphere. 
So people just want to know that they have a good opportunity for themselves to earn a living so that they can provide for themselves and their family. So by doing that in the world of work, we're able to address both economic issues and social issues. Wow, that's really wonderful work and is so needed in today's society, especially when we see unrest in many areas of the world. And some of that can be addressed by just providing economic opportunities for people. Yeah, you know, I, I've traveled around in my UN career to about 65 countries. I'm now currently in Washington, D.C. as the director of the International Labor Organization. But as I travel around the world, you know, people by and large just want to have a good life for themselves. You know, they're not looking for opulence, at least not most people are. Um, and most people don't want to just sit around either, right? Because you have skills and talent and industry that you want to sort of put to, uh, put to task, right? So if I can do a job that I like, that I have a good skill for, that I, that I have an acumen for, then I, I feel that I'm doing something of value. And trading that value for a better life for myself and for my children and for my family and my community, you know, you're helping to build a better society for yourself. So the ILO is focused on two main issues. The first issue is social justice. And social justice is an issue that's been around for a very long time. It's not just about uh, racial inequalities, but it is about non-discrimination on the basis of sex and creed and race, uh, national origin, uh, economic status. Uh, to pursue your economic growth as well as your spiritual development in conditions of dignity and freedom and opportunity. So this is something that everybody should be focused on, and to today's world, it's much needed that we need to have dignity in the workplace. The second element of that is called decent work. And decent work is a job that you have freely chosen that offers a fair remuneration with good conditions of work, with opportunity for growth, again, very much like social justice, it's treating people fairly, in the workplace and that they have an opportunity to provide um, you know, their skills in exchange for that remuneration. So around the world, what we see is a great deal of poverty. You know, in the industrialized economies like the United States as well, you know, we have challenges. There's no doubt. People are looking for good jobs. We need to, employers are looking for skilled workers. But many people around the world are living on the edge of existence. So we need to look after the worst among us or the people who are in the worst circumstances. You know, because work is the only way that you're going to be able to get yourself out of poverty. There's no other way in which to do that. So we're really focused on these issues. We work very closely with the 187 member states that are a part of our organization, with the workers and employers organizations to negotiate this. So when we are speaking at our conferences, you know, it's not the bureaucrats or the technocrats like myself that are sitting down and talking about these issues. It will be the governments and their representatives. It will be the trade unions and workers' organizations. But at the table for the Americans, for example, the U.S. Council for International Business is the employer's organization, but it'll be Coca-Cola, Walmart, Disney. These are the companies that are the actors of the real economy negotiating what the rules of the road will be. So it is not, again, imposed on anyone. It is developed through negotiation, a process that we call social dialogue. And when we use social, we talk about people. This is all about people. And international labor is about the organ it's an organization about people at work. Right, that's really important work. Um, I wonder, you know, when you talk about having those populations who are living at the edge of existence, and then governments, you know, sometimes implementing programs. Sometimes do you see that there's a disconnect for um, those folks to find opportunities, whether in education, training, or just finding a job. Like, is there, um, are they well connected to those opportunities, or are there still challenges to be overcome? 
And, you know, there is a lot of diversity around the world. I think you know, when you start to look at this level of analysis or what is our perspective, you know, from the government perspective, they want to have a harmonious society. They want to make sure that things are moving forward. They want to make sure that, you know, that the, the culture of that country is maintained. Um, so they may be imposing policies that may be in disconnect to a large majority of people there who may be disempowered, right? I mean, traditionally in the world of work, there is an asymmetrical power relationship. Those who own the means of the production, as it is said, you know, can make those decisions. And the people who are trading their talents and their skills are at the lower end of that scale. So they really can't influence that. Basically, that is not the way that we look at it today. We look at it today that, in fact, um, that people, the talent, the human resources that come to work for a company are the gold for that company. Most companies that are successful bring in good people, they bring in good talent, they treat them well, good conditions of work, opportunity for advancement. And in exchange, those people are not only earning the salary, but they're also more productive. They are advocates for the company. You know, and today's younger cohort, people want to work for companies they admire. Other countries that are setting policies as well have a little bit more of an egalitarian approach. I, I see this, uh, you know, in Canada, they have a, a sense of social justice and of fairness. We see that in some European countries as well and around the world. But not every country has the same prerogatives. Now, when you look at it from a community point of view, when businesses are failing in a community, those communities fall apart. When we came out of COVID-19 or during COVID-19, we had seen a lot of businesses had to close. And that was because we couldn't be in person, right? So a small pathogen came into our world and shut down the global economy. And 81% of all the workers in the world in the first six months of COVID were out of work. That created tremendous problems. So we needed to have policies that would bring people back into the workplace and bring people back in in a way that was safe and secure for them. So the policies that governments are creating, whether it is for the government's perspective, whether it is for the business perspective, whether it is for the employer, uh, the worker, or even for the community, I think we have to balance all of those. And the one thing that the ILO is good at is bringing people to the table, engaging in a process of dialogue, showing respect for the other side of that, through building consensus, we'll come to a compromise, which not everybody will get everything they want, but that's the way we move forward as a species. Right. So you mentioned having the trilateral talks, right? So between companies, government agencies or government entities and the workers. So when you talk about the workers, are they individual workers? Are they unions? Or So what happens if a worker, for example, is working for themselves and not part of a union? Then how do you address some of those issues? Right. So in this tripartite approach, um, when you look at the workers themselves, I mean, you're at, a, again, a very disempowered relationship, right? I mean, a, a worker who is you know, in a company one year, five years, 10 years, they can't just walk into the CEO's office, right? They can't go to the board and demand things, right? So what you need is you need representation. So in the ILO, we have what we call fundamental rights. You know, and one of the fundamental rights, and it's a fundamental right in the Universal Declaration of as well, too, which this is the 75th anniversary, is called freedom of association and collective bargaining. So that means that as a worker, if I'm in a company and I have representation, and I can actually have my representative say, I would like to negotiate a higher salary. I haven't been given any raises in the last few years, or I need you know, childcare benefits, or I need a housing allowance, or I need more time off. So that negotiation has to take place through your representative. So for the workers, it always is through the association or through that employer's, uh, the, uh, the workers' um, uh, union itself. Uh, when you're at a business level, you also have the right for freedom of association and collective bargaining. 
You have chambers of commerce. You have sectoral agencies that people are, are part of that look after their interests, that are sharing knowledge about how they can improve their uh, positions and their uh, operations in the world today. So this idea about coming to the table as equals, being able to negotiate in a free and fair, open way to ensure that, you, that you're looking after the benefits of your side, right? Um, and we shouldn't see ourselves on either side. We should be seeing ourselves working together because no business is going to be able to move forward without any workers. And no worker has a job unless a business creates it. So we are in this symbiotic relationship that we need to work together. Absolutely. So you mentioned the pandemic kind of throwing a wrench in things, right? So what do you think have been the biggest impacts coming out of COVID? And what do you see as some major trends globally that impacts the workforce now that we're post-pandemic, so, so to speak? Yeah, you know, the, the pandemic had laid bare um, some of the trends that were already happening. So, for example, when we did our report, the ILO turned 100 years old in 2019. And during that year, we were looking at the future of work. What would the future of work look like? Um, but what it was prefaced on were a number of mega drivers of change. So some of those mega drivers of change are climate change, right? Mitigation techniques against climate change. This is real. It's happening. It will impact upon people, the land, and our economies. We were also looking at hyperglobalization, right? We were very much intertwined into the global network of, uh, of uh, supply chains, and these were hit very hard during COVID-19. Um, you also had the drivers of labor migration. Um, many people who are in places that there aren't access to decent work or they're fleeing persecution, refugees, they need to go and find new work for themselves. So that was also changing the way in which we were looking at the work. And there were a number of other ones like digital technology, which was displacing workers. And now with the end of advent of, um, of uh, generative uh, AI, mm -hmm. you know, we're seeing, um, we're seeing you know, the world of work starting to change even more so. So it amplified and laid bare a lot of the, um, uh, the problems that we had uh, in society policy-wise before. Yeah, and what, what do you think uh, companies or countries are addressing that? Because I know earlier today we talked about the demographic change, especially in the U.S. as well, having fewer younger workers. Um, what do you see are some of the policies that we should be expect, what we should expect in the future? Yeah, so, you know, demographics was another major, a mega driver of change as well, too. So, for example, you look at some countries that have a, an aging population. So we see that it's happening in the U.S., but it's happening in Italy, it's happening in Japan, a number of other countries as well. And those are workers, um, the older workers, that are phased out of work. You know, sometimes they have Social Security, sometimes they have other measures in old age that'll pay for that. If you don't have a lot of young workers coming into the workforce, how are you going to pay for those benefits, right? So really creating challenges. Other countries will have the reverse situation. So, for example, Africa as a continent, and there are 54 countries in Africa, so very different in those themselves. But by and large, they have a reverse demographic where there's a very young cohort of people as well. Now, the challenge they have is to be able to train people for jobs and take advantage of that for the future themselves. So the policies that we're going to have to enact in this very difficult and complex environment is looking at a, at a human-centered approach, right? So we have to focus on what is helping individuals, right? Introducing technology for technology's sake that may be at a disadvantage to humans it could be a problem. So for example, when you're looking at writing algorithms, and algorithms are running many things for us today. When we're going on the internet and we're looking, you know, whether it's Google or it's amazing sometimes that when you go online and you start to see 
oh, well, I was just thinking about this, and an advertisement pops up, right? So it looks at the individual. There's a lot of technology behind that. It's analyzing you as a a customer, right? And that's going to be changing things for yourself, right? So there there are lots of uh, parts uh, about the new world which is going to be very difficult. The policies that are going to have to be put in place in order to ensure that people are the ones who benefit from this, it just cannot be a one-sided deal. Uh, And again, technology is meant to aid humans, um, but then moving forward, as we look at it, we're not going to stop technology. Um, you know, humans with technology will always be better than humans without technology. And technology has always been changing, whether it has been from a paddle boat to a sailboat, whether it has been from a horse and carriage to a train to an airplane, whether it has been from looking at analog computers now to these digitals or quantum computers and so so the world has always been changing so we're not stopping that that's human ingenuity and that's a wonderful thing to celebrate but we have to ensure that that helps the human species as we move forward not just in this country or in this continent but around the world globally because we are all interconnected in that way right it really needs to be a collaborative effort um, earlier we also talked about the impact of mental health on work and also the advent of remote work and how that's becoming more and more commonplace. Can you comment about any policies that would come regarding mental health or remote work? Do you see more companies allowing that or do you think that's more of a temporary measure to uh, combat the issues with the pandemic? Yeah, you know, mental health is being sort of touted now as the new imperative in the workforce, right? And the, the, the reality for that is that we've done some surveys, we work with Gallup, and they've come out with these uh, these uh, global surveys and looking that people are stressed out. You know, people are worried. They're worried about their future, they're worried about their families, they're worried about opportunities for themselves. During the pandemic, people were on telework protocols or they were just staying at home and they were working as digital labor platform or what we call digital day laborers. You know, they were isolated from other people. I mean, I, I wondered about how you know, individuals who were sitting at home in their apartment, not being able to go out, not being able to interact with people, how lonely that must have been, how isolating that may be, right? So if you have that situation, it starts to create, you know, these uh, these challenges for you mentally. So mental health is now creating tremendous pro- trouble for the global economy and that people want to continue to telework, but I think now we're seeing that employers want people to be in the workplace. They want to be able to measure their work by their presence, mm-hmm. by time, rather than by deliverable. So we're going to have to be figuring out the way in which how we look at the new world of work is going to be uh, animated. Um, I feel in some ways, for example, that you know technology and remote work and um, the ability to create um, businesses um, you know, sort of almost uh, out of thin air means that companies don't have to have big brick and mortar places, right? The the COVID showed us that retail, um, you know, sort of regular retail stores, you know, had fallen apart. They had closed down, that closed down downtown areas that, you know, the restaurants closed. So that was a problem. Then people could still buy online. So I think businesses uh, will be molecularized. So it could be one individual or three people who are creating a business looking for other partners in areas that have skill sets that they need, and they'll create these bonds uh, to create a business for themselves. So businesses will be very different in the future. And again, with AI, you know, you're processing information almost at the speed of thought. Um, and, you know, it's now hopefully with the, you know, kind of this um, uh, this uh, human feedback, which is very important. Otherwise, technology can get a bit out of control. Uh, but we want to make sure that the 
that you know the business that does move forward that comes out of this that creates gainful employment for people because if people are suffering they don't have um, they don't have a, uh, an empl- an income for themselves you know they lose their house they lose their opportunities they lose their network of friends so work is an important part of keeping us rooted in reality absolutely so you mentioned ai right and i think a lot of people have some understanding but sometimes i feel like a little bit understanding is worse than none because you think you know what it is and and then that can cause a lot of problems that can cause some fear right when people think about being replaced by robots and even some computer scientists or coders they feel like maybe their job will be replaced by a robot or an ai program that's going to be writing the code instead of them what do you see on that regard, I, do you think there's some policies that may be coming in place regarding software engineers or regarding AI? Yeah, I mean, it is a it's a new area I think for people to look at. But you know, the the uh, the antecedents of uh, the, sorry, the precedents of um, of AI have been around for a while. You know, mm-hmm. people have been using Spotify and Google, and you know, there are um, traffic patterns, uh, traffic uh, systems that are. Um, you know, based on AI, about flow, about information, right? So, th- so these these elements of these building blocks have been around for a while. So I, I think that you know what we're going to be seeing is a future that is going to take advantage of these developments. But how do we then move forward with that? I mean, that really depends on how we're going to, you know, um, constrain the uh, the negative aspects of that in order to ensure that people have more uh, opportunities, you know, to use that technology in order to enhance their. Um, you know, job uh, skills and, and job opportunities in the future as well. So we're not going to stop technology from happening. It's been there. It's always been there. It's the thing that helps us actually do more with less in many ways. And, you know, we're in an economy here in the U.S. which is more of an innovation economy. Um, but we also work in places where people are still in subsistence agriculture. We're working sure. in places where people are still doing the manufacturing. We are looking at different places that, you know, have challenges. So not everyone is at the same level. So it will also help these other countries if we get it right in the developed countries and in and places where AI is being developed. And it's not only in developed, it could be in developing countries because talent can be found anywhere. But we have to make sure that what we're looking at is not something for me here and now and how much I can maximize my profits on this. But how are we developing systems for the continuation of harmonious relations and uh, economic growth and social progress in the world writ large? Right, it's a bigger picture, right? And looking at a, a much wider view and a longer future time frame as well. Right. So anything else you wanted to share with us, Kevin, while you're here? No, it's it's been great to uh, you know to have a, a small little window on the community here in Albany. Um, I've been traveling around myself across the United States, and uh, recently I've just come in from Seattle talking about uh, violence and harassment in the workplace. I was uh, in Minneapolis talking about mental health with the National Safety Council. I was in Canada at the Canadian Labor Congress talking to them about freedom of association, collective bargaining, the voice of workers, and then also with the employers in Ottawa uh, talking to them about you know their business plans in the future and how they should be looking at the workforce as their most important resource. So, you know, it's been a real uh, uh, privilege of mine to travel around and understand the world of work a little bit better in the countries in which I'm responsible for, uh, having spent most of my time overseas. Um, and I just have to say that you know we all experience work in different ways, but work is the common element that pulls us all together as a human species as well. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time, Kevin. It's such a pleasure to host you.、Um, I just remind all our listeners to subscribe to our podcast, give us a like, and please visit our website www. iccralbany. org. Thank you.